Welcome to Your Child's Brain, a podcast series produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WYPR. I'm Dr. Brad Schlager, pediatric neurologist and president and CEO of Kennedy Krieger Institute. Today, we will be discussing a couple of related topics, rare neurological diseases in children and the importance of clinical trials in pediatric medicine. I'm joined today by Drs. Erica Augustine and Ann Comey. Both are experts in pediatric onset rare diseases of the nervous system and in clinical trials for children. Dr. Augustine, a pediatric neurologist, is the Associate Chief Science Officer and Director of the Clinical Trials Unit at Kennedy Krieger Institute, and she is an Associate Professor of Neurology at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Comey, also a pediatric neurologist, is the Director of the Hunter Nelson Sturge Weber Center at Kennedy Krieger Institute and is a Professor of Neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Welcome, Erica and Anne. So Erica, let's start. What exactly is a clinical trial and, and how, how do they differ from other research studies and what's the objective? Well, thanks, Brad, for inviting me to join you to talk today. And I, there's nothing I love more than talking about clinical trials and really thinking about how we move forward new treatments for our patient communities. And, you know, I think the motivations for research and trials are really important. So if it's okay with you, I'd take a step back. You know, we're all clinicians. And I imagine that for each one of us, the reason that we went into medicine was to help people. And when I'm with a patient, my goal is to help that one person, to work with them, to alleviate symptoms or improve symptoms. And in research and clinical research, my goals are the same, my, except I can do that with, with broad groups of people. So with clinical research, the goal is to create knowledge that can help many people. And in clinical trials, the goal is to test new kinds of treatments or to create new ways to provide care for, again, many groups of people. So trials are just one kind of research where the goal is to test and to develop new treatments. Well, those, those are um, really important objectives that we all share. And, uh, and we are all in the pediatric medicine space, the three of us. So we're quite aware of the discrepancy between the amount of clinical trial work that's done in pediatrics versus in adult medicine. Maybe we should talk about that a little bit, Erica. What, what is the discrepancy? How, how different is the volume of clinical trial work in pediatrics versus adult medicine? And why does that matter? You know, I wish I could say that um, children had those same opportunities to have new treatments developed or that new therapies came about for children at the same pace of adult, as adults, um, but that's not the case. Maybe 10, 15% of ongoing trials involve children and the general path is adults first, then children. And I think when we look back at the pandemic and the development of vaccines, we can see exactly that. It was adults first and then children. And we tend to work our way back. We really start with the oldest age group in children once we get to children and then gradually go younger and younger when it comes to clinical trials. And so we know that even today there are ongoing trials for children and groups of children or age groups where um, vaccines haven't been developed yet because we started with that paradigm of adults first and working back. And sometimes we don't work back. So there, there's actually um, 
legislation that has been developed to try to stimulate more interest in and more development that focuses on pediatric clinical trials and has had some success. But, uh, you know, as, as we all see in our day-to-day practice, the three of us, many of the medications that we prescribe and for many other people who care for children, most of what they prescribe is what we call off-label. Uh, the label for any one drug is, is really sort of the set of instructions and the summary of the evidence or the knowledge that was developed about that drug that helps inform a clinician on how to use that drug. And that information in the label is all based on the clinical trials. So if the clinical trials didn't involve children or the clinical trials didn't involve children with a specific condition, those instructions may not address the questions that you have as a clinician when you're faced with a patient. And again, you're going back to that idea of trying to help treat and alleviate symptoms. You might not have all the information that you want about dose or about side effects or about how much it actually helps. So there's a lot of work that we need to do. Agreed. Uh, Completely agreed. So, uh, Anne, let's talk about rare disease now. So what is the definition of a rare disease? How do you make the diagnosis? And what are some of the challenges that patients living with those rare diseases face? Thanks, Brad. A rare disease is a condition that affects fewer than 200,000 people in the United States. And, And it's really important to recognize these conditions because it's more difficult for these families and patients to get an accurate diagnosis. And that's because fewer clinicians have actually cared for these patients in large numbers and understand how best to make the diagnosis and what the optimal treatments are. Since that's the case, it's important for these patients to have access to experts in their conditions. So I have expertise in the diagnosis and care of Sturge-Weber syndrome. And it's important for patients to and families to have access to the people who really understand the disorder. In addition, it's more difficult for us to obtain grant funding for many of these rare diseases in order to be able to improve understanding, carry out clinical trials and advance the care of rare diseases. And so it's really important that we get the message out that altogether patients with rare diseases account for a very large number of patients and are very important to moving medication forward in in pediatric neurology. It's just that for each individual rare disease, there's not very many of those patients and those that presents special challenges. Yeah, that's a point to really underscore uh, that individual rare diseases are themselves rare, but altogether, it's not uncommon for somebody to have a rare disease. So, and maybe talk a bit more about you mentioned Sturge-Weber. Maybe talk a little bit more about Sturge-Weber and what kinds of problems uh, individuals with Sturge-Weber face, and then how clinical trials that you've been involved with have been beneficial for for the patients that you you take care of. Right. So Sturge-Weber syndrome and related disorders that these patients that I see, they have abnormal blood vessels in the brain, the skin, and the eye. And these cause a whole host of issues for these patients. Many of these patients with Sturge-Weber syndrome have seizures from a very young age. They're at risk for strokes and stroke-like episodes. 
And over time, they can develop neurologic issues like cognitive impairments, weakness, motor problems, and other learning uh, issues. And clinical trials are really important for over time, moving the treatments forward, advancing treatment and care of these patients, and increasing our understanding of what causes the rare disease so that we can develop new targets and new treatments in the future. So Erica, let's, let's talk a bit about what some of the challenges are in conducting clinical trial investigation, the kinds of, of trials that, that Anne was just referencing, you know, for rare diseases. How do you address uh, getting participants, the issues around consent, funding, if it's a rare disease, uh, people may live far away from where that clinical trial is being carried out. Can you, can you talk about some of those issues? Clinical trial logistics are, are not straightforward. There is quite a lot that goes into the operations of clinical trials. And I think one of the challenges for rare diseases, which as we've talked about by the definition, not a lot of people have any one rare disease, it still takes the same amount of resources and effort to launch a trial for perhaps 30 people as it does for 500 or even 1,000. It still is a monumental effort to get that off the ground. And so sometimes the, the funding is a challenge because it can be quite costly to develop and to execute clinical trials that are focused on rare disease populations and having the, the interest, the, the ideas to test the interest from either academics or from pharmaceutical companies to develop trials, that can certainly be a hurdle. And then as you mentioned, being able to actually find the people who are eligible for the study, who are vaguely in proximity or near a center that's conducting the trial, all can be major barriers. Increasingly, as some of what we study um, in terms of new possible therapies for rare disease, are complex therapies and they require specialized knowledge to um, track symptoms or specialized knowledge to administer the treatment in the first place. So there are more and more trials where people actually move or relocate for a period of time in order to be able to access the trial. It's great that the trials are happening, um, but we need to find ways to really improve access in a, in a regional kind of manner to make research participation more feasible. And early diagnosis is another challenge along those lines. So if you were uh, speaking to a parent of, of a child that has a rare disease where there is a clinical trial available, what are some of the reasons why you might um, explain or, or discuss with parents about the, the reasons to choose to participate or, or any individual with a, a, a diagnosis that is available for a clinical trial, what's the argument for participating? In rare diseases, we really, for many conditions, can manage symptoms somewhat, but effective treatments are often lacking. Most rare diseases, um, we talked about that label, that FDA label or the Food and Drug Administration label that goes on a drug. Um, most rare disease conditions don't have an approved therapy. And so the clinical trials are really important to be able to move forward a path to possible treatment. The trials themselves aren't, trials aren't treatment, trials aren't care directly. It's really a, 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 
process for testing whether or not an idea, um, a possible uh, intervention could be a treatment. And that trial is the way that we find out about that. And so for some families, they are highly motivated to participate in trials because of the lack of therapy and because of that possibility that what's being studied might be effective and that early access opportunity. Some families tell me that they're motivated to participate in trials knowing that what's being studied might not work, but they're highly motivated to contribute to knowledge about their child's disease, to really try to make sure that the trials are successful in enrollment, um, that there can be continued interest in developing new treatments, and to really contribute to their community. There are so many different motivations for trial participation. Um, and I think those kinds of reasons and motivations are really important to discuss with families and for families to discuss with researchers as well. And uh, Erica was making the point about the trials are really testing an idea or treatment concept. So let's, let's talk a little bit about how uh, potential treatments are developed to be eventually tested in trials. How does a treatment come to be testable in a trial? Maybe speak to some of the work that you've done in that space. The journey towards new treatments for rare diseases in particular begins actually with understanding that rare disease and, and what happens to those patients over time. That's called the natural history of the disorder. So that's a really important starting place. We need to combine that oftentimes with lab research or what's called basic research to understand what causes those rare diseases, the, perhaps the genetic mutation that causes them or, or other factors that are important to causing the symptoms that, that these, have, these patients have. For example, several years ago, our team discovered the genetic cause for Sturge-Weber syndrome. And that discovery pointed to some very important and novel new treatment strategies, which subsequently we have begun to test in clinical trials in these patients. Maybe we talk a little bit more about like the specific experiences, successes and, and with clinical trials that you've each carried out for rare disease. So we haven't, Erica, we haven't really talked about Batten's disease, diseases that uh, your, your area of specific expertise. Maybe talk a little bit about that set of conditions and the work that you've been involved with to, to address it with clinical trials. Sure. Batten diseases, as you mentioned, they also go by another name, neuronal steroid lipofusinoses or NCLs and see why we say batten diseases. And these are a group of conditions that are genetic diseases that are progressive in nature or what we call neurodegenerative. They mainly affect the nervous system and the people who have these conditions uh, have a host of symptoms that may include blindness, problems with movement, problems with thinking or dementia, as well as epilepsy. And for some of the NCLs, um, these symptoms result in, um, in a shortened lifespan also. These are very serious conditions. And across the group, like I was saying about most rare diseases, we don't have effective treatments for most of the forms of Batten disease. So there's a lot of interest and a lot of passion in trying to bring forward new treatment options. 
interventions that can be effective and that can slow the progression of these diseases. And, you know, I think what we see with fatten diseases is true for many rare diseases now where we finally understand the cause of the conditions and we understand the genetics of these diseases. And so that gives us opportunity to create paths to treatments that make sense or what we call rational therapeutics um, based on how the disease occurs. And what we also have seen is that once there is one success in terms of creating a treatment, it generates a lot of interest. So several years ago, once the understanding of one particular form um, of Batten disease was known, something called CLN2 disease, it was understood that there was a, an enzyme that was missing. And if you could give that enzyme back into the nervous system, then you might have that opportunity to, um, to improve the disease course. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and that natural history concept really understanding how the condition unfolds and how it impacts people was really formative to the development um, and approval of that therapy. And so to really see that idea, the basic science work and how it was able to move through a clinical trial to approval um, was incredibly exciting. And um, then we worked with others, again, around this sort of specialized delivery of this particular therapy to think about standards of care. With other NCLs, um, there are, again, many other efforts that are similar to bring forward new treatments. And some of the work that's ongoing that we've pursued and that is ongoing now has not only to do with natural history and how we best measure symptoms, but also how we tackle some of those challenges of geography and the ways that people are spaced out through unique kinds of partnerships, maybe one central site with lots of satellite sites where people live, or a study that I'm involved in now essentially has what might be think, thought of as a mega site, where there are three different institutions all working together to evaluate and conduct a trial for a single group of patients. Um, and so there are a lot of innovations that we're trying to bring forward to make trials accessible and feasible. Thank you, Erica. And uh, I wonder if you wanted to comment a bit more about the work you've done in Serge Weber around cannabidiol and, and seizures. How, how that story unfolded and uh, what, what, what we've learned from th those investigations. Thanks, Brad. We began clinical studies about 20 years ago and over that period of time developed biomarkers and what we call outcomes, ways to measure how the patient is doing and any improvements so that those can be used in clinical trials, drug trials. And several years ago, we began those studies. And more recently, we carried out the first prospective oral drug trial with cambodial for medically refractory, very severe seizures in Serge Weber syndrome. And, and then we found in actually the, the patients who were most severely involved, who had the fewest options, who had already failed multiple medications, responded the best uh, to the, the cannabidiol. And now we are able to utilize, um, administer cannabidiol for patients with Sturge Weber syndrome and, and severe seizures. And we are also moving forward with testing cannabidiol in for other aspects of Sturge Weber syndrome. So it's been a really exciting process. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's a great success story. I, I, 
just uh, our last question for, for this uh, episode, I, for both of you, let's start with Anne. What, what's on the horizon? What are, you, what are you excited about that's coming for pediatric clinical trials, especially in the setting of, of rare disease? Thanks, Brad. What's coming very soon, I think, is the incorporating of genetic testing in the eligibility criteria and enrollment for patients on the spectrum of Sturge-Weber syndrome and related disorders so that we can best target a specific drug with a specific mechanism of action to the the patients and subjects who are most likely to respond. And, And so that process is evolving right now. Linked to that, ultimately, for these rare genetic disorders like Sturge-Weber syndrome, we're, we're very excited about the possibility down the road of gene therapy applied in, in those situations. So again, this, it's been really exciting times, very interesting and, and really important to keep moving these efforts forward. Erica? I think this is such an exciting time for care and for research for children. And some of the most exciting advances in medicine are happening in the context of neurology and neurodevelopmental conditions. And we're really at a point where the foundational knowledge that we've been building for decades can now be paired with a library of tools and options of how we might actually target core symptoms, core uh, causes of those diseases to be able to move forward with the creation of new therapies. So we're in a whole new therapeutic era in our respective fields. And I think we'll really see continued evolution in terms of how we diagnose certain conditions, how we care for people with these conditions and how we create new paradigms around what it means to create treatments. And all of that is just incredibly exciting. Well, thank you both. And as you all have heard, Rare diseases are individually rare, but collectively, they're relatively common. So understanding how to best treat these diseases to improve the lives of children living with them is paramount. So please check out our entire library of topics on your child's brain at wypr.org forward slash studios, kennedykrieger.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to Your Child's Brain. Your Child's Brain is produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WYPR and producer Spencer Bryant. Please join us next time as we examine the mysteries of your child's brain.